0: I recently moved from a neighborhood within the city of Chicago to Oak Park, a village right outside the city limits. One thing that I absolutely love about our new home are the beautiful tree-lined streets. It really makes me feel happy and content to step outside and see the lush vegetation surrounding us. That feeling of serenity while immersed in nature and surrounded by trees, plants, and flowers is a common one for human beings across almost every culture. In fact, some researchers believe that we may have evolved to prefer living among natural environments, which may be essential to our thriving. A growing body of modern research has shown that green spaces may actually be protective against a number of health outcomes, including adverse mental health, cardiovascular disease, and mortality. Green spaces may influence health by decreasing stress, promoting physical and social activity, and mitigating air pollution and noise. Researchers are taking advantage of modern technology and databases to measure greenness using satellites and other databases um, linked to study participants' addresses and even Google street maps. But of course, living near green space is correlated with a number of socioeconomic and sociocultural factors that must be accounted for when making inferences about green space's effect on health. Today, we will talk about how green space may affect our health, and how researchers are using technology to measure greenness and isolate its effects on our health. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center. And this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research, straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. So this is a fun one today because the expert on green space and health that I get to interview here is actually my brother. Peter James is a newly minted associate professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, as well as the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health. Uh, this is really exciting. Thanks for joining us to talk about your research, bro.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Awesome. Thought you would say something smug there, but you know. <laughs> <Save> <laughs> anyways, it for later. Yeah, save the smugness for later. The interpersonal brother relationship stuff. All right, cool. Also joining us once again is Ghassan Hamra, who's been, do- been doing an excellent job serving as guest co-host as I've been balancing work and tending to my twin infants. And actually Peter just got to meet them this week. Um, Gasan is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I got my doctorate and Peter got his master's degree. So we're all familiar with the place. Um, and, you know, actually wanted to officially announce that Gasan Gass- has done such a great job as guest host that I would like to officially announce he is now co-host of Epidemiology Counts. Thank you so much for all your hard work and thanks for joining us, Gassan.
2: Yeah, sure. Happy to be here and happy to, to tag team some uh, efforts with Peter to get you to start riding a bike around your <laughs> neighborhood a little bit more. <laughs> That's so right. Hopefully, hopefully I, I got to like- look
1: at the, the street layout. It seems very safe. Uh, sounds like there's, it there's really
2: it's, no
0: barriers didn't really cold. make
2: a pitch for a dangerous uh it's 30 degrees area. here man
0: it's too cold to bike oh please okay, i rode all 10
2: right. miles and 30 degrees yesterday
0: that's right that's all right we right. are all not, not talking we are not talking about biking and pedestrian safety on this episode <laughs> we're enough, talking about enough. green space so you guys <laughs> can all read me on all that. there are
2: a lot of trees on my commute that's right it was beautiful Beautiful, right across the Schuylkill River in Philly. It's this, stunning. ladies and gentlemen,
0: is why we did not have Peter as the biking and green space <laughs> built environment uh, host, uh, expert for that one. Anyways, all right, so we, uh, let's get right into this. Okay, so talked a little bit in the intro about how this feeling of, of happiness and serenity in nature and green spaces um, is close, pretty much close to a universal human experience. And I think most of our listeners can relate to that, right? Um, but, you know, it's a stronger statement to say, not just that greenness makes us feel happy, but it's actually good for our health. So why do we think that green spaces might be linked to our health, Peter?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, starting off with this idea that we as human beings kind of value nature, I think that is something that we see in, you know, real estate. We, we see that in, uh, you know, the, the actual things that we prioritize. People like you know spending time in national parks traveling to to you know natural settings um, it's certainly something that we we you know put our dollars behind um, but i think you know this the idea that that actually you know green spaces can get under our skin and affect our health um, is something that's kind of rooted in this theory uh the, the biologist eO wilson kind of popularized this term of biophilia right we've evolved with nature to have an affinity for nature um, and since then you know there's been a few other theories that kind of based in the psychology world of, you know, attention restoration theory. Something about being in an urban setting kind of taxes our attentional uh, control um, and being in a natural setting somehow, you know, invokes a sense of fascination, indirect attention, kind of something about it is relaxing, you know, watching leaves sway in the wind, you know, something about it allows us to replenish those reserves of directed attention. So we're ready for the next cognitive challenge. Uh, And then there's stress reduction theory. And this is just that, you know, being in natural environments something about them evoke a positive affect for us, right? Um, They help us to, you know, uh, block negative thoughts and feelings. And, uh, you know, there's this theory that it activates our parasympathetic nervous system in ways that reduce stress and arousal, right? So these are kind of underlying theories. Um, But I think, you know, there's more and more evidence, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, there's growing evidence uh, that green spaces are actually linked to kind of hard health outcomes, right? Um, First, there's the kind of randomized trials There's a pretty famous randomized trial from the 1980s where patients were, uh, you know, after surgery on a recovery room floor, they were randomized either views of nature from Mm -hmm. their hospital beds or views of a brick wall, right? Mm -hmm. And it turned out that actually the patients who had views of nature had, um, you know, uh, shorter hospital stays. They actually left the hospital earlier. They requested fewer painkilling medications, Mm -hmm. so lower levels of pain. Uh, there were uh, fewer complaints from the staff about them, which is an interesting <laughs> metric. Um, and then also they had fewer complications post-surgery. Right? This was one of the first kind of um, studies, I'd say, uh, empirically testing this idea that just looking at nature might have mm-hmm. some benefits for health. Um, mm-hmm. Since then, there's been a lot of randomized trials. right? So where you, you know look at, looking at randomized pe- people to walk in a park versus walk in an urban setting, or even randomized people to look at a picture of nature versus a Mm -hmm. picture of an urban setting, right? And you Mm -hmm. have people do different tests or you have other kind of um, physiologic measures, right? Mm -hmm. And it just, the the evidence is overwhelming that they're, uh, you know, if you look at a picture of nature or if you walk in nature compared to an urban setting, there's lower blood pressure, uh, you know, decreased heart rate, lower uh, concentration of cortisol, which is a stress biomarker Mm -hmm. um, and better performance in cognitive tests, right? So Mm -hmm. I think there's pretty consistent evidence in terms of these kind of shorter randomized trials, that something's going on here, right? There's something about nature, uh, you know, that this, this biophilia theory that seems to be true, that we as human beings, not only do we like it, but something about it kind of gets under our skin and seems to move the needle a little bit on health.
2: What's interesting. It, it, what's, what's interesting to me here immediately is that you called out a number of randomized trials. Like I would have never <laughs> yeah, thought to neither. myself that the first, Oh, like the same thing in Nate yeah. green space research would be randomized trials. I thought yeah. it'd be more, you know, standard issue, or I guess not standard issue necessarily, but more <laughs> what I do, which is just observational research 99% of the yeah. time. And I, in fact, all the green space stuff that I've, that I've kind of read in the past is, has been that. So the fact that there is a number of randomized trials and to look at this, especially that one of the hospital view, I think is really fascinating. Yeah. But um, what it immediately makes me think is, how do the observational studies stack up to the randomized trials? Yeah. Because that's always a question that I can only assume they're
1: consistent, but I, I, I wouldn't know. Of course, yeah, no. So I think that is, that is the big issue, right? A randomized trial sounds like a good idea, but how do you randomize somebody to a lifetime of green space exposure right. yeah, and exactly. look at an outcome like cardiovascular disease or mortality, right? So we have right. to use observational studies to do that. And I would say in, in general, for these you know, longer term chronic outcomes, we're seeing really consistent findings across the globe. Um, from large prospective cohort studies or administrative data sets like in uh, you know, Denmark where you have all the medical records for every person living in the entire country, right? And you can, you can look at where they live and you can look at, you know, 40 years later, um, what sort of mental health outcomes do they have? Uh, what sort of mortality outcomes, right? So there's, there's been lots and lots of studies and I'd say that the evidence is really uh, pointing to, you know, the people who live in greener spaces have higher levels of physical activity better mental health, higher birth weights, uh, you know, lower incidence of cardiovascular disease and lower mortality rates. And I think there's growing evidence, um, you know, there may be better uh, you know, cognitive function over the life course. Um, there may be lower rates of diabetes, lots of other uh, outcomes as well um, that we are, we are starting to see linked to green space uh, in observational studies.
0: Yeah. Super cool stuff. And I should say that, you know, I am a dementia and cognitive function researcher. So, um, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, well <laughs> you know that, um, but what's cool is that this could be an overlapping area that already we're seeing, uh, Peter is starting to collaborate a little bit with my group at rush on this creeping, um, in. creeping into the Your dementia. Turf. research. Again, trying to get that Alzheimer's money. I know how hey. it works. Uh, is <laughs> no, Such a cool, such a cool concept and and totally fits in with all of our other, um, you know, risk factors for uh, dementia and cognitive function that we know of. Um, But anyway, so, you know, one thing I wanted to ask about that's so interesting to me is you were talking about how uh, and following up on Gasan's point about the randomized control trial. So, the, you know, those are short exposures, you know? So like, you know, you're saying that even just a really brief exposure, like a walk in the woods for a few, like a week, you know, seems to have, a, a, you know, Effects on our health. I mean, even looking at nature, that to me is really shocking. So it's like not, not even anything. I mean, there may be some mechanisms about the carbon dioxide that's being sucked out, of, you know, whatever, but, yeah. but like all that stuff wouldn't even be the case if you're just looking at mm-hmm. a picture of nature. This is something about just that visceral response we ha- as humans have to nature. Um, and, and, you know, so there, I was going to ask follow up questions about exposure time. Mm -hmm. um which and like how you kind of capture that and also you know kind of the micro versus macro aspect you know like um if you live in an urban setting and you have just a little park next to you are you going to get benefits from that versus living in in a total rural setting where everything around you is vegetation so how do you kind of account for the time and space aspects
1: yeah so i mean this is there's two aspects there right so Mm -hmm. so first of all there's what is the nature right that is mm-hmm. a big component of it what are we talking about when we're talking yeah. about defining nature right yeah is it is it vegetation is it trees is it grass is it bushes is it you know parks right park mm-hmm. not all parks are green mm-hmm. but maybe it's about having access to a park that's important um you know and you know we'll talk primarily about green space today but what about blue space water uh what about mm-hmm. brown spaces deserts and mm-hmm. uh, other settings so like it's really complicated to know how we define what nature is right. and what we enjoy as human beings. Um, and that's something we're working on. But, but then the other aspect is kind of your, your exposure to nature, right? Mm-hmm. So we think about um, like kind of a, an axis of like frequency and intensity or frequency duration and intensity, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, is, is your health benefit big enough that, that, you know, you need to go for a week in Yosemite every year? And that's it like you get the health benefits of nature you're done or right. is it about daily exposure to some level of green space for they're like weekly you know there's a study that looked at you know people telling about their frequency of time in nature um and they showed that you know there's like this kind of plateau after two hours per week right huh. so it's two hours per week after that anything else is not really doing much but you need to get those two hours per week is that yeah. you know Sufficient. and i think that, that study is great but it, you know we need more information so we don't really know and that's that's um, part of what we need to do in our field is quantify what is the actual active ingredient in nature that mm-hmm. seems to move the needle on health and second you know what's the the right dose of that nature that we need to get um, and it's uh, you know it's it's uh, you know happy to talk more about the methods that we use to try yeah. and get
0: this let's talk about that
1: yeah <laughs> so so I think maybe first we talk about like, how do we link some of this, uh, mm-hmm. the data on nature to some health data, right? So what yep. we do is we use uh, you know, geographic information systems. We use spatial data sets, uh, for instance, satellite data on vegetation. Um, so we're really lucky that NASA has satellites that take images of the globe, the entire globe, know every 16 days basically every surface is covered and we have really high resolution data down to like 30 meter resolution so 30 by 30 um, uh, resolution data where we can get the objective amount of vegetation in a given 30 meter by 30 meter area right Mm -hmm. Um, uh, because vegetation gives off this unique spectral signature so we can get that information Uh, we also have you know land cover databases where people have kind of uh, classified um a given every area of a of a city or even the, the US um as a certain land type so is it impervious surface is it forest is it wetlands and we can link that to our participant data um and then oh, we have someone's the
0: done States. that for the entirety of the United States
1: yeah so we do it about every five years this oh national land cover database yeah wow it's pretty cool it's I mean it's it's not done by hand it's kind of done by an algorithm is it done but, by the
0: government or is there like the government a, yeah government does that Wow. okay yeah sorry go ahead so uh
1: So then then there's other administrative databases. So these are usually done by, you know, a county or city, Uh, you know, you have like a a layer that tells you where the parks are, right, a layer that tells you maybe even where all the trees are in a given city. Um, These are a little trickier because you have to maintain them and they're not usually available for the whole U.S. Um, But then how do we link that to health, right? So usually what we do do is we take a geocoded Address of a participant. So you, you, a participant will give us their address, and we use a database to say, here's the longitude and latitude of your address, right? And we, we then link that spatially to uh, either, you know, if it's looking at these vegetation databases, we can say what pixel, what's the level of vegetation in the pixel that you live in, or in, you know, maybe a neighborhood, what we call a buffer around your home. We can look out, you know, a thousand meters around your home and say, what's the average vegetation in that area? Or what's the distance to the closest park, right, from your home? Uh, and so we use those kind of metrics as exposure. Um, and I know this is, you know, not a methods uh, podcast, so I <laughs> won't get into it. But you can imagine how proximity to nature or living around green space is very different than use of green space, right? Mm-hmm, you may mm-hmm. live close to nature, uh, but maybe you don't actually go to that space. Maybe it's a private green space you don't have access to, mm-hmm. or maybe there's perceived access, right? Maybe if you're from a Certain culture, you say, well, that's that that park isn't for me, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't designed for me, right? Mm-hmm. So um, all of these measures are are a proxy for exposure to green space. Mm-hmm. They're not a true measure of use of green space mm-hmm. or contact with nature. Um, and so we're increasingly using you know GPS data from your smartphone. Um, so our participants are volunteering their their location data so that we can get at you know whether they're actually spending time in greener spaces or not.
2: So one of the things i kind of i always think about with this and my my wife actually studies green space as well so <laughs> no uh, way i didn't so know that my, yeah uh, yeah she does some of that at, at Drexel her name is Leah Shinazi you may have seen some of her oh yeah of yeah, course yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so cool. um, yeah so what true nepotism all over i know i was podcast. i was gonna use that exact <laughs> word and i didn't i i have i have refrained from inviting her for an episode for that same reason so uh, my brother doesn't have the same ethical standards yeah, apparently well. <laughs> not
0: Apparently not i thought this was um, your idea to invite peter Good song, yeah that, that's true that's actually true I, well i
2: said green space and you said peter so yeah yeah so um so what i comes to mind is and you i've you've alluded to this is the ability to distinguish types of green space and this is something yeah. i'm always hearing about from her which is that you know, like I, and i can only imagine that there's only so much you can do but how 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 good are those kind of um government satellite imagery in terms yeah. of you know, saying like this is like a, this is like tree canopy here versus Uh this is a grassy park, which isn't, I I mean, you can, I guess you could qualify like baseball or a soccer field as green space in a technical sense. It is green, right. right, right. Quite Literally, but Uh it's not the same as in my mind as walking in the woods. And and, and to
0: jump in, can you distinguish it from like AstroTurf? Like, like not even real vegetation. That's green.
1: Well, well, I will say, you know, the measures are not of actually the color green. So they can distinguish ah, astrotope mm, from, from Okay, so good it to actually know. Looks at the wavelength of light that's scattered by the vegetation and uh, vegetation absorbs visible light for photosynthesis mm. and scatters near infrared light for, to keep from overheating. And that's that ratio that, that we look at. So it's not the color green. So exactly. we will say that first. So It's actually vegetation space. At. Okay. We call it green space, but it's really a measure of vegetation or, okay. or photosynthetic potential, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, because you bring up a really good point and this is exactly what we're doing, uh, right now where we're, we've actually, um, we're capitalizing on these deep learning algorithms, uh, where these algorithms have been trained pretty much for autonomous vehicles to, to be able to identify basically anything. And you may have seen this when you like paste the photo into a PowerPoint, it gives you some text and saying what's in that image, right? Mm-hmm. These algorithms exist where they can take any image and make sense of what's in that image. So what we've done is we've, um, through funding from NHLBI, we've downloaded 380 million Google Street View images across the whole US. And what we're, we're applying deep learning algorithms to those images to say what's actually in them. So it'll give us to the pixel level, you know, it predicts Uh, is it a tree, is it bush, is it grass, is it flowers, is it a mountain, is it water, is it sidewalks, right? So we get that information and then we can say for an image it's, you know, 23% trees, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We can then link that data back to our participant address data um, and look and see how that uh, exposure to specific components of nature are related to, you know, physical activity, cardiovascular events, things like that. So we're trying to get at that. We're also using satellite data and uh, combining that with Google Street View data to predict better what actually is in the satellite image, as opposed to saying, here is the level of vegetation with, with no information, and specifically what's in that vegetation, we can actually use the combination of kind of Google Street View and satellite data to, to you know, basically derive what's in a given pixel. Um, and so that, that is exactly what we're doing. I will say it is a solvable problem. Like ecologists are out there, you know, mm-hmm. mapping trees, mapping tree species. We're just not mm-hmm. tapping into that data, right? I mean, right. We, it, it's, it's big data and it's complex for us mm-hmm. to deal with, but there are people out there doing this. And so we need to make those partnerships um, and you know, join with, with folks like, um, you know, we have Matt Browning at, at, at Clemson, who's doing a lot of this work with park data sets, and he's working with us to say, well, you, you, know, you guys can improve on some of your, your sets by using the, the kind of data that we've already cleaned across the U.S. looking at parks. So I think there's a lot of exciting collaborations that are really interdisciplinary, right? Wow. And I'm working with folks from department, uh, departments of recreation and parks that are not epidemiologists per se. Um so those those collaborations will really help us to tease out kind of what's the specific active ingredient in nature that drives health.
0: when we were walking when you were visiting me, we were walking down my tree line mm-hmm. streets, and you were saying that at some point, maybe soon you'll be able to actually pick apart the species of tree you kind of mentioned yeah. this as you were talking yeah, um, <laughs> you know in every you know the, in in every image and and we could actually isolate like the specific species that are good for people. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating, you know? Yeah,
1: I mean, you think about pollen, right? Some uh-huh. trees have much higher levels of pollen yeah. or allergenicity, right, than mm-hmm. others. Uh, you had an app on your phone <laughs> that yeah, you took a I picture of a, yeah. of a tree and it tells you what species it is, right? Yep. Yep. Was... We just need to scale that up to all of our Google Street View images and, and say what's actually in these images. Now, it's, it's really just a computing power issue. Mm-hmm. It's not that it, the, It's not that the algorithms don't exist, they're on all of our phones, right?
0: That's crazy. Do you do you have to, I'm assuming that like seasonality comes into play. Like when you're looking at these images, obviously you got to count yeah. for whether it's winter or summer. Yeah. How does that come into play?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, these images weren't collected systematically for epi right. research, right? Yeah. So we do have the month of, of data capture mm-hmm. um, and we can kind of incorporate that into some of our approaches. The nice part is that they've also, they're also time varying. Google Street View mm-hmm. uh, images have been captured since 2007. So we do have mm-hmm. repeated measures in a lot of locations so we can look mm-hmm. at changes um but you know it's it's i wish we had you know four measures a year uh and we could really look at at seasonality that is a little bit of a shortcoming. I and we basically have a snapshot of whatever point in time that was
0: mm-hmm. very cool stuff well <laughs> i feel like we could talk about how you uh measure green space for forever for the whole podcast <laughs> but uh and and we could keep and we can come back to it because i'm sure there's so much more you could tell us but Um, I do think we should talk about, you know, we're talking about all of the amazing things that being exposed to greenness means, but you mentioned, um, you know, that, that some people may say, well, I see that green space, but I'm not, I don't really have access to it. So, you know, obviously the ability or even the privilege to live among green spaces is unfortunately not equally distributed across the population. Right. So, um, if if green space is related to health then i could see it being also a source of health inequity right mm-hmm. so can you talk a little bit about green space and how it's related to health equity
1: yeah i mean there's this big in in the you know the the infrastructure bill there's this this concept of tree equity now uh-huh. so everyone's talking about tree equity and how there's been many studies that show that access to nature is extremely inequitably distributed across the us in our research we've looked at all the census tracts in the US and looking at these vegetation metrics and we've shown that white neighborhoods have by far the greatest access to green space. Um, and these, these disparities in exposure or access to green space have persisted over generations. And they really cut directly a, a across race and socioeconomic status. Uh, my colleague, Joan Casey at Columbia has also shown that you know the historic racist mortgage appraisal practice of redlining from the 1930s mm-hmm. is actually le- linked to tree canopy uh, green space today right yeah so we know that there is inequitable access to green space um and i think it's really important to think about this in terms of what that <clears throat> what that means because there's some research and actually a, a lot of research i'd say uh where we we show that nature could be a tool for health equity so decreasing mm-hmm. health disparities and i'll, I'll dive a little deeper into that studies that look at you know stratified analyses by socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. seem to show that lower income neighborhoods get the biggest benefit from green spaces okay and so so that might be you know there's three theories as to why one is suppressed baselines basically lower socioeconomic status communities have more comorbidities they have more to go to make Mm -hmm. health gains right Mm -hmm. um there's also lower vehicle ownership in lower SES communities. So they're more kind of linked and tied to their neighborhoods. people in those neighborhoods. Um, and then there's lower access to private amenities such as you know, gyms or private backyards, right? So really you're reliant a, a lot more on the, the features of the neighborhood that you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we actually see is because there's a bigger health benefit to lower SES communities, we find that in greener places, there's a lower, a smaller gap between mm-hmm. the wealthy and the less wealthy in terms of health outcomes. So people have talked about using green space as a tool for health equity, right? So Mm -hmm. actually adding green spaces to to lower income communities may actually move the needle on health disparities, right? And and decrease those health disparities. Now, the other side of the coin is this concept of green gentrification, right? This idea that if you paternalistically come into a lower income neighborhood and you say, look, I know this is good for you, it's gonna help you, it's gonna help you. We're going to grow trees well we're going to plant you know trees and, and make parks well you may actually price out the people who live there and displace yeah. people who currently live in those communities mm-hmm. so uh you know my colleague isabel angolovsky in, in barcelona has done a lot of pioneering work on this and thinking through like what are ways that we can do this type of intervention while being sensitive to the residents who live there and what they want right talking actually participate you know having them participate in the planning process to say yeah. this is what i actually want in terms of a green space. And you know, it's important And we think about the, you know, the climate crisis, those populations are, are usually ones that suffer the most from the climate crisis, but who have contributed the least to, to us so, getting to the crisis, yeah. right? So we do owe something to those populations to be sensitive and not come in and say, look, this is good for the environment, it's good for health. And all of a sudden we're, we're changing their communities and displacing those, those individuals.
2: I'm glad you brought that up. Very directly because it's it's one of the I think immediate things that people will say about this kind of thing. And I also appreciate that you've brought up the uh, thing about use of gyms and in indoor spaces and private spaces because it seems like one of the aspects of green space that is that is potentially improve a way to improve health is just by supporting community cohesion, mm-hmm. which I think in other areas of research has certainly been shown to be beneficial to everybody mm-hmm. in the community and um, one of the things i specifically wanted to ask you about this was that you know you we we you've mentioned in the context of green gentrification the idea that you people will say hey we're going to come into your neighborhood and and plant all these trees and make this beautiful park and then people of color in communities get priced out of their own neighborhoods but Has there actually been kind of this intervention type of work specifically to say that we know for a fact and can say with some degree of confidence, hey, we've shown actually that if you put parks and community spaces, trees, et cetera, into communities that don't have them regardless of socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you could be the Upper East Side in in New York for all I know, Um, Mm -hmm. but in any community where there is no green space and has it been shown that, you know, kind of the before and after has has that been shown to improve health or is it, are we kind of working off of um, theories about that based more on just general trends in exposure to green space and health outcomes.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, and it leads me perfectly into Gina South uh, in Philadelphia. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, no, but, um, no, but she's a you think. know emer- yeah she's an emergency medicine physician at uh, at Penn, but she's done some amazing work looking at uh, randomized trials of greening vacant lots in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they were able to uh, pick vacant lots in Philadelphia. Um, and randomize them, uh, it's cluster randomized. So, uh, you know, basically they, they would randomize to either no intervention, they do nothing, uh, a greening and cleaning intervention, they'd go in, they'd clean it up, they'd, they'd plant some trees, they'd plant some grass, uh, they put a little fence around it to, uh, with still access points uh, to show this is kind of a, this place is, is a, um, a reserved place for, 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 you know, green space. Uh, and then there was another intervention, just trash cleanup. So they just clean up the trash. But they leave it as is, right? <laughs> and they showed that uh, there were lower levels of, um, you know, depressed, uh, you know, symptoms, um, <clears throat> lower feelings of worthlessness, uh, and you know, lower feelings of poor mental health in the greened places compared to the nothing, you no know, intervention. But that wasn't seen for the trash cleanup intervention, right? So there it does seem to be yeah. something about the greening aspect really of, of greening vacant lots. Um, I'll also mention there's um, this uh, Green Heart project in Louisville, Kentucky, where they are working with the community um, and they are uh, attempting to measure things pre and post for a lot of cardiovascular outcomes, but they're planting many, many trees and working with the community. Um, I'll also go back to Gina South's work. She now has a a $10 million randomized trial for for, um, both greening and also renovating uh, homes in Philadelphia um where she's working with the community again similar to this idea of green gentrification she's she's actually hiring community members to think about the intervention and answer the questions they want to answer um and see how to improve the lives of the of the residents of these um you know these communities
0: I find that so convincing. And and actually, I was going to ask you a question that you kind of answered there, because when you were talking about how you see the biggest gains in lower income neighborhoods, I was thinking, you know, well, is that because that's where you see the most like urban blight? So quote unquote, you know, the most broken sidewalks and abandoned houses and just kind of like disarray. I mean, not to bring up the you know, whole broken windows theory, which has been kind of like discarded at this point. Yeah. But, you know, there is this idea that if you're just looking at this kind of broken down urban environment, it's it's going to be negatively affecting your health. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, you know, if you're comparing it to the green spaces, is it really just order versus disorder? But, you know, your cleaning yeah. versus greening trial that you're bringing up kind of answers that, you know, you're you're, you're you're lowering the disorder, but you're not adding the green and it doesn't have as much benefit. Mm-hmm. So that really, to me- mm-hmm argues there's something about this green space that really um, is, is good for our health. But I wanted to follow up on, you know, these are such important points. And I know that you and all, and all the researchers you work with take this all into account and are very cognizant of this green gentrification and the, 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 the inequities there. So how do you actually take that into account when you're doing... Um, your research. So if you want to show you have all this amazing satellite imagery showing that people living near green spaces are doing better health wise, how do you account for the corresponding gradients in socioeconomic status, social yeah. cultural factors? Like how do you adjust for those, those um, factors?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, we take that very seriously because that is the, the strongest possible,
0: you know, confounder, confounder
1: yeah. uh, for, for, our, um, for the associations that we're looking into. And so what we do is, you know, in, to the best of our ability, we account for individual socioeconomic status, asking participants about income, education, things like that. Um, we also look at neighborhood socioeconomic status with you know, census tract measures, median household income, median home value, uh, you know, percent high school education. Uh, we also look at various measures of segregation. So that could be racial or income segregation, for instance, using Nancy Krieger's index of concentration at the extremes. So that allows us to really, um, you know, incorporate those factors into our analyses and see the, uh, the association between green space and health independent um, social socioeconomic factors. I'll also note, you know, it's kind of a strength and limitation of, of a lot of the work that I do. I work with the Nurses' Health Study, right? It's a, um, it's a large prospective cohort study, a lot of, lot of huge strengths. One of the weaknesses is that, you know, they're all nurses when they enrolled in the study. So there's a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, homogeneity in their, in their- um, uh,
0: Socioeconomic status.
1: Occupation. Yeah. But um, yeah, and also there's, they're 95% white. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, so that, that, that is a uh, generalizability shortcoming, but it is a huge strength in terms of thinking about confounding, right? There's not that much variability in individual socioeconomic status compared to the general population of the US. Mm-hmm. So we don't worry as much because we're still adjusting for these things, but it's, there's just not that much variability. So, um, and, and we've even shown, you know, one of the things that maybe you'll ask about, people often think about what we call neighborhood self-selection. It's just that people who are healthy choose to live in greener environments right mm-hmm. and we've actually looked at this and we we've, we've looked at you know things like bmi and physical activity in our participants uh, who move right and we said you know do people who are healthier do they tend to move to greener spaces and we actually don't see that uh, people don't choose i mean maybe some of you you guys might have chosen to to move to oak park uh, <laughs> you know in area to to you know be in a greener space but most people don't choose green space as the the major factor for where they choose to live, it may be schools, it may be what they can afford, you know, mm. uh, but it's really not necessarily a green space, so I don 't think um, you know we obviously account for these these things, um, but it's not as strong a selection factor as we think it mm. is
2: mm. so uh, it's, I'm so glad you said that because that <laughs> is an incredibly a, easy segue to what I was going to ask next, which is selection after covid because mm-hmm. you know it's november 2021 we have to talk about everything we're doing with a little covid a, a covid caveat COVID chaser. but yeah i will say i do feel and this is of course anecdotal i mean, if certainly for us but the you know before we moved to our neighborhood in mount airy we lived in south philadelphia which is more or less a concrete jungle mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the people, I think there's actually a, a concrete company there called Concrete Jungle because they just, <laughs> they just know what it is. And that's, that's very fine. Philly. Um, yeah, it's very Philly, 100% Philly. But the, motive- the number one motivating factor for us was access to green space. And this really kind of became more and more prominent in our heads in the context of COVID where it was harder to get outside and do things so easily you know that desire to kind of be in outdoor spaces that were more open more natural oh easier to access at least did and it felt fundamentally safer because you were outside rather than inside exactly. that that drive kind of increased a lot after it COVID. saved my but family's
0: I, life parks yeah parks <laughs> yeah. were the only thing kept us going during
2: that exactly day. and so i i kind of wonder if if there's anything any research into that kind of shift because I feel and it's of course you know anecdotal but I do feel like you know we moved to this neighborhood of Mount Airy yeah. and if you look at the housing market it's it's impossible <laughs> to find a home yeah. without paying you know 30 percent more than what they're asking because people, mm-hmm. so many people yeah. want to move to spaces like this now
0: such a great question. Yeah. I just want to follow up. It also ties into our inequity conversation, right? Because right. only privileged people got the ability to move out of their urban environments to these more green spaces, you know, and totally. all those people are like, I don't have that option during during the pandemic. So anyways, go ahead. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, you're right. If you have the privilege to work from home, it's great to live in a greener space out out, you know, farther from the city. But if you have to commute to work every day, it's trickier. So I, I think, you know, this is this is certainly um, something we've seen during during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, I mean, people are flocking to greener spaces. Um, I think it's a it's it's going to be a complicated story in the next year um, if we do start to return to work more often and we uh, start to realize we're you know missing out on all the benefits of of the of cities uh, in terms of restaurants, bars, and yeah. uh, being able to commute easier. So I, I do think it's a it's a complicated. Question in terms of where we move and where we live, Um, but I think in terms of just green spaces, bringing the conversation back to, to, you know, the amount of time that we spent outdoors during the pandemic, I think was everyone understood that this is kind of core to us as human beings, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, parks were overwhelmed. Um, Some parks had to close because they couldn't they couldn't keep up with the maintenance of the number of people you know who were who were flocking to parks during the pandemic and this is you know makes sense because parks are places we can be socially active, physically active um, but keep our risk of covid transmission low because you know we're outdoors the ventilation's super high. So mm-hmm. I think I think whenever I talk about this I like to to you know go back in history here and think about why parks were created in the first place, right? Public parks were originally designed as kind of a resilience measure during pandemics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the famous landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted which I think Brian doesn't know, Frederick Law Olmsted. Peter just called his, me
0: but... on him while he was here, I guess. fair enough.
1: <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Frederick Law Olmsted designed Central Park in New York City. He designed Boston's Emerald Necklace, lots of other parks. Uh, you know, he championed this concept of parks as lungs um, and mm. talked about the two great natural agents of disinfection, sunshine and fall foliage, right? Uh, I love this idea um, because people inherently knew back then, in the you know 1800s, mm. that there's something about parks that seemed to be necessary during pandemics, right? They actually didn't really know how disease was transmitted. They weren't saying, oh, um, you know, we need to uh, decrease, you know, airborne transmission, Um, but they recognized that parks play a vital role in keeping us sane and healthy during pandemics. Um, And actually now during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there've been many studies showing, I mean, from Google mobility data, so GPS data on your phone, that people are spending a lot more time in parks than they are in any other types of spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been research showing that spending time in parks helped to alleviate stress, like lower your levels of stress during the pandemic. Uh, In our work and a few other folks have published on similar types of studies, uh, showing that if you have higher green space in the county that you live in, you have lower COVID incidents, right? So there's actually lower COVID incidents and that's independent of socioeconomic status. Um, and actually it's, uh, we showed that actually green space seemed to be protective for COVID mortality rates uh, in counties with high percentages of black residents and in areas with higher population density. So I think that there is something you know, mm. to be said about how green spaces do serve us during a pandemic. Um, and I think we need to recognize this and change how we fund and maintain green spaces, right? I think mm-hmm. we need to fundamentally change our perspective on green spaces as a perk uh, or a privilege and really think about it more as a right or a need, a necessity, right? Yeah. So, um, and this speaks to the idea of you know funding and it also speaks to the idea of equity, right? This is not something that the wealthy should be able to have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, Um, you know, lower income people will be lucky if they get access to green space. This is something we all need as human beings.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I should also say, this should tell us that what happened in many cities, including Chicago during the pandemic, where all the parks got closed and locked up, is absolutely the wrong way to handle things. <laughs> that was the place that we should have gone for respite and for being able to interact with each other safely um, and physical activity, and yet we were locking it up. So hopefully we can learn from that mistake going forward. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the, the pandemic kind of took this re- research on green space and kind of turbo boosted it. It's like, you know, every, <laughs> every benefit that you could get from green space is just like really apparent all of a sudden, you know? Um, yeah. Cool. Well, that's that's so interesting. So I, you know, I wanted to touch on. So we talked about green space and COVID, but you also mentioned earlier green space and climate change, and those are two kind of big uh, recurrent themes throughout this podcast that we want to get into. So how can how can you talk, um, tell us a little bit more about how green space can kind of alleviate some of the problems of climate change? Yeah.
1: So the way we think about it, you know, green spaces have massive co-benefits for both human health and the health of natural systems, right? So mm-hmm. first of all, they're a major carbon sink. This is maybe a no brainer, right? But um, you know, the, there's some stats, you know, planting half a trillion trees could capture 205 gigatons of carbon, which would reduce atmospheric carbon by 25%. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually uh, enough to negate 20 years of carbon emissions at the current rate of production, mm-hmm. right? So that's, I mean, it would move the needle. It's not enough. And I don't mm-hmm. you know, consider planting trees alone to be a uh, solution to the climate crisis, but it could be a, a big, big part of the, the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is that, you know, green spaces provide substantial cooling in urban environments, right? Mm-hmm. When we think about mitigation, you know, temperatures are gonna be rising. And we know that in the U.S., you know, low-income blocks have lower tree cover and, you know, are about, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than high-income uh, blocks. So we know,
0: again- is that just because of shade? Is it because of shade exactly. or is there shade, something else?
1: Evapotranspiration. I mean, the, the uh-huh. trees are actually, you know, taking up water and cooling the air, uh-huh. right? So there's cool. there there is actually a cooling effect. Um, you know, this urban heat island we see. Green spaces seem to decrease that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think there's there's uh, there's that aspect. There's also soil erosion, uh, preventing you know runoff from major storms that we'll be seeing more and more often. Um, you know, so I think. I think we know that green spaces could have this kind of huge co-benefit for both health and addressing the climate crisis. I think another side of the coin is, you know, wildfires are a a substantial concern. Mm. And so how do we, you know, manage green spaces (laughs) in, you know, um, especially in rural areas where this is is more of an issue. And I, I just think, you know, Within the context of the co-benefits, we really do need to think about this equity aspect, right? So I talked a little bit about how low-income blocks will be affected more by the climate crisis, but it's also true at a global scale, right? Developing countries are, uh, you know, affected much more by the impacts of climate change than wealthier countries because they're more vulnerable and uh, have lower, you know, coping capacity. So we do need to take this also as a uh, a global tool for equity, mm-hmm. right? It's a tool for climate equity and for um, health equity as well. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, One of the things that, so as as we've been talking about all of this, I've thought about something that you touched on at the very beginning, which is about exposure to green space and timing of things like that. And the first thing I immediately thought about at the very beginning was forest bathing.
0: Or mm-hmm. this kind of,
2: you know, this, which I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, Brian. Tell, Ryan. tell, it, tell it, the you listeners. Just, I just wanted to say forest bathing, honestly. I didn't <laughs> actually want to talk you about it Peter mentioned
0: this to me and yeah. I had no idea what he was talking about. So hit <laughs> yeah, so, us. So,
2: I mean, it's a concept of just being among trees in nature mm-hmm. for some abbreviated time period. And of course, it's, I think it was an NPR or some other article or little piece where they're saying forest bathing is, you know, if you go out for five minutes in the woods every day, you'll have this, that, or the other health benefit, which of course, it's a, it's a media article. It's hard to, hard to really understand the truth in it or the accuracy, but it got me thinking about the stuff we talked about the very, very beginning of this and the interventions that you would even propose to people to say, mm-hmm. if I were to ask you, Peter, like, what should I do on a, day-to-day or weekly basis just to kind of maybe mitigate any kind of adverse mental health or or maybe improve cardiovascular health Mm -hmm. benefits in 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 the context of access or kind of taking advantage of green space around me what would you what would you say to any any random individual about it
1: yeah yeah i mean the 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 unsatisfying epidemiologist's answer is that we kind of need more information to get at those specific active ingredients but if I take off that hat, you know, and I really think about, you know, what what does the evidence say? I mean, there are these studies that say two hours a week um, seems to be beneficial of spending time in nature. What that nature means, I, I can't say specifically, that might be up to you. Um, but there's a few different interventions that we've, we've thought about that are kind of individual level and also kind of policy level. Mm-hmm. One is this kind of idea of park prescriptions. Maybe doctors can actually write you a prescription. I isolate, you know, like from mapping, you know, you live here, here are parks that are near your house. Here are some green spaces that are near your house. Um, I, I'm prescribing two hours a week. Um, go and spend time in nature. What do you do in that nature? You can walk, you can sit, you can do burpees. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, you, you Brian, can don't just do spend burpees. some time. <laughs> Don't do burpees. <laughs> do burpees don't. I only do burpees when forced to do burpees. <laughs> two hours a week of burpees. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, that, that that might be an individual level intervention to say, you know, you need to increase your time in green space and then you'll get this health benefit. Mm-hmm. Another is kind of more of a policy level intervention, this this concept that I really like, cause it's, you know, catchy, but it's 330, 300, right? Three trees within view from every home, 30% tree canopy cover for all communities uh, and 300 meters to the nearest green space for, for every home, right? That's so so cool. this idea of like, yeah. can we design communities so that everyone has, everyone has equitable access Mm -hmm. to nature right Mm -hmm. um and i think you know one of the things we've kind of been alluding to but but urban nature is really where we can move the needle rural adding another tree in a rural community isn't what we what we're talking about here we're not talking about everyone moving to yosemite we're talking about improving and and you know funding the amount of nature we have in our cities and in our everyday lives you know that's most people live in cities and if we can incorporate nature within our cities, that's where we really move the needle because then people have this routine exposure uh, to green spaces. And that's what we really uh, want to do. So it's, it's not about my intervention is not go to Yosemite, you know, once a year. The intervention is find a way to make nature a routine part of your life. So
2: in in, in that regard, do you think that there are any model cities that have really mm. kind of, and you know, it's a, the greenest a model city. city, you know, it, yeah. Portland. Model city is, model city is tricky. <laughs> Put right? a you bird say, on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you say like Vancouver, and it's yeah. just like, okay, oh, that well, is a great real city. estate in Vancouver Beautiful is like a million dollars or something That's like true. that. Like, so, you know, like <laughs> yeah. a, a, a city or at least some urban area that seems to be maybe not perfect, but at least heading in a good direction in terms of improving green space in an equitable way. Mm. Great
1: question yeah i mean that's a that's a really good question i think a lot of cities are are working on this i'll speak to boston just because that's where i live and that's where i'm i'm really attuned to a lot of the work i mean there's there's organizations like speak for the trees boston that's uh you know there's the arnold arboretum which is you know a harvard run basically a a, a arboretum for for the free to the public that is a collaboration with the city of boston too Um, we are increasingly trying to plant trees and understand equity issues and who has access to green spaces across the city um, and creating these kind of networks of green spaces like the Emerald Necklaces um, running throughout, you know, both low income and high income parts of the city. Um, and I think that we really uh, need to see, uh, and this is us, on us as epidemiologists, um, but on also economists and other policy folks, we need to, to quantify some of these health and climate benefits of nature, um, and then walk that forward to, to a dollar value, right? Because that's what moves the needle on our budgets. And we need to see nature again as not an amenity, not a perk, but as something fundamental, you know, to address the climate crisis, to address equity and health equity, and to improve the health of everyone who lives in the city. Um, so I think if we can position nature and 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 trees and parks in that setting, um, I think that's where we really can move the needle. And I think there's um, you know, there's so many academic minds in Boston mm. who are thinking about this, um, who are trying to measure, you know, temperature gradients, for instance, by, by levels of trees across Boston communities. Um, and, and that type of information is, I think, what will move the needle eventually. Um, you know, I, I think it's also within the context of, of you know, the infrastructure bill and other big federal funding initiatives to make, um, I don't wanna get too political here, but to to make it seen as not some silly, you know, liberal. um, A luxury. uh, Ideology luxury that we're planting trees, but actually to see the value of trees, right? Trees are not just, oh, look, that looks nice. Um, Trees actually do potentially impact human health, impact climate, impact equity. So um, that's what we really need to do. To understand kind of the the distribution of of, uh, green spaces, uh, understand how they affect our our health, how they affect the climate, and then bring that information to stakeholders and policymakers to um, change their priorities.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, you kind of uh, we have one final question here and you kind of (laughs) tipped your toe in it already. But, you know, what's next in studying green spaces and health to you?
1: So, so I think, first of all, I think the big thing, and for an SCR audience, maybe this is helpful, you know, what's the active ingredient? We're not From just an SCR audience. Just I, know, I know, I <laughs> know. But for those SCR members, uh-huh. you know, causal inference, right? What's the, you know, we have this consistency issue when we look at, you know, a vegetation index, okay? Mm-hmm. What is the specific intervention that we are kind of mm-hmm. uh, hypothetically um, uh, imposing? Is it increased trees? Is it increased grass? We don't know that, right? So getting at that specific component of nature through, you know, Google Street View or satellite, um, you know, deep learning algorithms, maybe tree canopy data or park data. um, That's really important for causal inference and for policy relevance. So we can tell policymakers what to do, you know, plant trees or make parks or maintain X, Y, or Z. That's really important. We're also using smartphone apps um, to to use GPS data to understand contact with nature, but also to push surveys or cognitive tests to participants and they can respond in real time. We can say you were physically in this location um, and you on an individual basis have better cognition or better mood when you're in green spaces versus less green spaces. So within person analyses of even personalizing um, our, our information on how you perform better or worse as opposed to comparing between people. So I think that type of data will really be insightful. I think more randomized trials, natural experiments even of changes in green space and trying to see how that's related to pre and post outcomes. Um, Policy and economic evaluations I alluded to, that's really important. Um, More global research too. Mm
0: -hmm. I think we have
1: a lot of studies in Europe and the US and Canada and Australia, Um, but we need more work in Asia, in Latin America, There, Africa, these settings are understudied. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also alluded to blue spaces, brown spaces, right? What about Mm -hmm. water? What about Mm -hmm. deserts? What about other types of settings? White spaces, snow, (laughs) right? These Mm -hmm. things also might uh, might be important for health and and for happiness. And I think we need to really know more about these policy levers with green gentrification and understanding how we can implement policy that doesn't lead to pricing out um, vulnerable communities, uh, or members of vulnerable communities. Um, and then ultimately, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think we'll be talking about this the rest of our life. The climate crisis is the biggest one. Yeah. We've talked about it already, mm-hmm. but you know, how do we really um, capitalize on a green space within the context of the climate crisis? How do we do that equitably? You know, is planting a trillion trees the right way to go or are there other approaches um, with green space to, to maximize the co-benefits and how do we do that in a way that kind of distributes the benefits to, to all.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Well, this is, I think this is a good place to stop. And uh, you know, I'm proud of you, little bro. Honestly, <laughs> you do such cool. You always know that I, I think you do such cool research. This is such an important area. So keep up the good work. Um, and in closing, if you're an epidemiologist, I recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership in SER gets you discounted a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which as of now is still scheduled to be held in June 2022 right here in Chicago. Membership also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities, and you can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the host and any of our guests, are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks.